Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. Well, welcome to the Painted Door. If you're new, my name is Mark, one of the pastors. We just... uh, pulled back into Chicago this morning myself and a number of other gentlemen from the church just got here uh, straight from the Painador, first ever Painador men's retreat, uh, which was, um, yeah, you can cheer. That's good. Yeah. Um, I never know how to pause rightly. I'll never learn that. Um, we actually spent a couple of nights over in uh, southeast Michigan at Life, Act- southwest Michigan, I should say, at Life Action Camp. Uh, and had a lot of fun. Actually, most of what we did is probably better left undescribed for a church setting such as this. Uh, but you can imagine there were lots of jokes about nether regions and strange aromas. Um, and also we talked about Jesus a lot, uh, which was good and rich. Uh, it was really actually quite a, a heavenly time. Um, but it's it's good to be back, uh, so I'm feeling a bit sleep-deprived this morning, uh, yet I'm also feeling full of love, really, any time that I get to spend extended period of time with a group of people from our church. Uh, I just am thankful, and I realize I really like this church, actually. I like the people that we've become. I like the people that we're becoming. I really like how uncovered our flaws are in this church, uh, hard as that is sometimes. Uh, I like just how prime of candidates we are for God's grace. Um, And I like the thought of wondering where he will lead us next in that grace. Uh, It can be easy to miss, actually, uh, when you look around at our church, just how eclectic this group is. I think you can get distracted or fooled by the similarities in age or ethnic background, but we're actually a pretty eclectic bunch coming from pretty different backgrounds. Some of us grew up in church. Many of us did not. Uh, We have different ways of looking at the world, different value systems, different things in the world that glimmer to us. Uh, We have different ways of thinking about God in this church, thinking about who he is in particular and how it is that he interacts with us, how it is exactly that he builds relationship with us. Uh, In fact, that manifests very differently among the different people in this room. Uh, We're all shaped differently by our backgrounds, our pasts, our traumas, our resentments, our bitternesses, and our joys, and our gladnesses, and our triumphs. And so there is much diversity, actually, eclectic uh, personality in in this room. Um, We have a different understanding uh, 
about how we should be navigating life, about what it is that we should be aiming at, about what life is all about. Some of us in this room are enamored most with the prospect of achievement, and that's what life is about for us. For others, it's partying or enjoying life, right? For others, it's family, family relationships. So we have these these differing value systems, and so when we come together as a community, the beauty of that is that we then start conversating with one another according to these opposing value systems. We start pointing out to one another the way that the world glimmers to us that it may not to another. And so we are always sort of zipping past each other, running after the shiny stuff of the world as we define it, yet when we come together in community, we're able to start pointing out the blind spots in one another, pointing out value in the world that others in our community may have not ever seen or appreciated, and we have to stop and wait and think. Because the truth is that the world is absolutely dripping with value. It's dripping with so much value, with so much worth, so much glory, that no one person can pay attention to even a fraction of it. Never mind acknowledge even a fraction of it. And so the beauty of community is that we actually are required to see more of the ways in which the world sparkles with the glory of God and manifests beauty. We're forced to think about it through someone else's perspective and through someone else's eyes and their background because we're all drawn to whatever it is that we see as shiny, like moths to a flame. Here's the problem with that. When we come together and we have these differing value systems, differing ways of looking at the world, differing accounts of what should be weighted most, what should be valued most, who gets to decide what the community puts on top? Who gets to determine which value system wins for a particular faith community or for a particular family even or for a neighborhood or for a city or for a nation how do we decide which of all the ways of looking at the world is the one that we are going to operate according to in any one particular group of people and this is actually this is a huge problem it's a huge problem in fact it's probably the problem in the world uh, that we all come with these different perspectives and don't know how to integrate them in a way that allows us to move forward together in oneness, experience communion with one another. It's a problem in, in families, certainly. You've all been a part of a family, and so you have firsthand experience, according to your experience of family, of this problem manifesting itself. It's often depicted in film or art, but typically there'll be one or more outliers in a given family, a person or persons who have a very different value system or way of looking at the world from the rest of the members of the family who might be more similar in their perspective. And how does that one child, say, not get completely overlooked when they are compelled deeply by the arts, for example, and the rest of the family 
goes to Cubs games or some other horrifying cultural atrocity. Right? You'll forgive me. I'm, I'm sleep deprived. <laughs> um, it's a problem in neighborhoods. We see that in Chicago in a very visceral way, right? That there are competing value systems at work in our neighborhoods, and who gets to decide what the value system will be that defines that neighborhood? There are some people who live in this neighborhood who value most nice coffee shops and CrossFit gyms and things like this. You see my bias coming out. I use the word nice to describe a coffee shop, whereas others who live in this neighborhood would not describe it in that way. And they might be longing for some other value system, for lower rent or some expression of ethnic heritage in the neighborhood that I would walk right past a thousand times and never notice. Who gets to decide what sort of neighborhood it's going to be, what the value system is going to be there? We see this problem when it comes to cities, civic authorities, when the city goes to make the budget, for example, and has all these competing concerns to address, and these competing constituencies that have differing value systems and are longing for more budgetary attention in the direction of the things that glimmer most to them. It has to be about schools, some people will say. Or it has to be about infrastructure. It has to be about social programs. It has to be about business development and economic growth. Who gets to decide? How do we know? How do we know how to move forward together in a value system that cares for one another and allows some semblance of oneness? Here's what we tend to do, I think when we find ourselves in these collisions of value systems, we try to win. That's the default operation mode of all people, is that when we collide head-on with a value system that we do not share, we seek to amass power or utilize the power that we already possess to overcome that competing value system, to triumph over it, and to ensure that our way of looking at the world, or our way of valuing the world, our way of extolling what glimmers to us is preserved. That we don't lose what we care about, what we want most to be elevated. And so typically we will, in essence, demand that our value system be the one that defines the value system for the family or the neighborhood or the church or the nation. Isn't that where we are right now as a culture? I mean, perhaps this is always true throughout human history, but there are ways that you can see it expressly manifesting, of course, in our national politics. An insistence, a demand that the world be shaped according to my particular value set. And the body politic, the operation of politics in our nation today is I must get the politicians that I favor into power. Why? So they can listen carefully to the other side and find compromise solutions that allow us to move forward? No. So I can win. So that my way can win. So that my country will be shaped according to what I think, what I value, so that I'll be proud of it, so that I won't be embarrassed by it. 
I want my way. And we're all doing this constantly, colliding into each other with no other intention than to dominate and win and impose our way on others. No one seems particularly interested in engaging with people of different value systems. It's just a power struggle. And whoever's stronger is going to get their way. It's might makes right. And if I can get more power, then I don't have to listen to you. Okay, that way of being is utterly toxic at every level. It's utterly toxic in families, certainly. Utterly toxic in marriages. Utterly toxic in parental-child relationships. Utterly toxic in neighborhoods. Utterly toxic in cities, in nations, in churches, in community organizations, in businesses. Whatever it is, any gathering of people where value systems collide and there is only the thought of winning in mind. It's a toxic swamp. Because what it does is it reduces or makes the basis even of human relationships adversarial. It makes the basis of human relationships about defeating each other rather than listening to each other and learning from each other. That's where we are as a broader culture. That's who we are. That's our default way of being. The broader culture is that way because we're in it. We participate in it. We contribute to it. If you don't get your way, you sulk and you whine. You say, no, not me. I'm not that way. Oh, really? (laughs) What will be your reaction the next time you receive a parking ticket here in Chicago? Will it, for example, be, well... This does not accord, perhaps, with my particular value system. But, alas, the dear, precious bureaucrats at the city have determined that this is an important revenue source for all manner of meaningful programs here in my community. Praise be to God. <laughs> no, that will not be a reaction. Don't kid yourself. You will make this sound. Arrgh! And then you will mutter under your teeth throughout the whole process of logging in online and paying for that ticket. This is a recent experience for me. <laughs> <Can't tell. laughs> Do a little therapy. Came to a full stop at a red light. Made a right turn without noticing the sign that says no right turn on red. If we had the power to veto every ticket that we ever received from the city, we would use it. If we had the power, we would absolutely implement our value system and triumph over the value system, whatever that twisted, mangled value system is that punishes us for getting parking and driving wrong. Now, I don't say that to argue for or try to defend parking tickets. I'm not there yet. But I do say it to try and expose to us what is the normal way of being for us when we encounter things that we do not like, that we do not agree with, 
that we take issue with. We want to defeat them. We want to veto them. We don't want to understand them. We don't want to listen carefully. We don't want to learn anything. We just want to win. So what then? Well, Psalm chapter 8, which we read a minute ago, meets us right in that swamp, right in that toxic swamp of wanting to win. It meets us with these words, starting in verses 1 and 2. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the adventure, the avenger. This psalm is a creation psalm. That is to say, it's an allusion to the creation song of Genesis 1. It's a sort of recapitulation of what's taking place in Genesis 1. The primary theology of Genesis 1 being, of course, that God made everything. And that God made everything in such a way that pushed back the chaos and disorder and brought in beauty and rhythm and harmony and glory. Here in Psalm 8, we read that even creatures as weak as babies and infants testify to that order and strength, testify to that beauty and glory of the way that God has fashioned our world. Even the weakest things in it speak to its strength. The psalm is telling us that, in fact, no one can oppose God with any success. No one can oppose his value system, I should say, with any success. What he calls valuable stands, and we all wilt before it. No one can redefine the world or what the world is apart from God. It's his world. It's not our world to redefine. It's not our world to make of it what we want, to define it according to our value system. He's made all things. He's the author of all things. So he's the one who defines all things. Psalm 19 echoes these words in its opening verses where the psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. God made it all. God defines it all. It's all his value system, and it's not up for debate. He is, in fact, according to these texts, all value. God is all value. All value is bound up in who he is, in his person. There's actually nothing inherently valuable in what he has made, except for that in his mercy, he has loaned value to the creation. Our value, the value of the whole world, your 
individual value is on loan from God. Now, it's been loaned with rather favorable terms, in case you were wondering. Psalm 8 goes on this way. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you take care of him? You hear what the psalmist is saying here. Humanity is nothing compared to God. Has no intrinsic value in and of itself in the face of the glory and value of God. We have no value of our own. Nothing to bring to the table. He brought it all to the table. He made us out of nothing. We didn't show up with empty hands. We didn't have hands. There were no hands. We brought nothing into our being. All of our being, all of our value, all of the glory of this world, not just of humanity, the creatures of man, but of all things, is on loan from God, as I said with very favorable terms. The psalmist in Psalm 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God has loaned humanity a crown of glory and honor. And it's on permanent loan. And there's no interest. Those are really, really favorable terms. God never holds it over our head that all of our value is on loan from him. Surely at some point in your life you have been in a similar position where you were extending and extending and extending generosity to someone and at some point you were tempted to maybe just slip into the conversation, don't you know what I'm doing for you? How about a little gratitude? God never holds over our heads the value that he has on loan to us. He never threatens to remove it from us. His generosity is unceasing. We just go on taking the next moment of being. And we will go on taking moments of being forever. He just keeps giving it, keeps extending it, keeps sharing his life. He says, because you have this value and honor on loan from me, therefore I treat you according to it. I don't treat you according to what you are apart from me. I only treat you according to what you are with me, in me, in my love, in my care, in the value that I have loaned to you. Because you're wearing this crown of value and honor, I set you over 
all that my hands have made. You that I have made. You who have nothing. You who have no legs to stand on apart from my fabricating them from the ether of my imagination. You I set over all the earth. You are vice kings of creation. You have dominion over creation to exercise divine rule here, to operate as representatives of God on the earth, to exercise authority in the earth. You've been given power to take care of God's world. It's an awesome thing that he would bestow that on those who brought nothing to the table. Let me ask you, how often do you consider the awesomeness of God? How often do you wonder at the works of his hands, at his glory and at his beauty and at the way all of creation glimmers with his person, with his value, how it all reflects him, points us to what he's like, that he is spectacularly creative and diverse in his love of beauty and in his generosity of sharing his being and his life with us. When you feel warm air in spring on your skin or in your lungs, do you hazard the thought of what a gift that is? When you taste good food or listen to great music or see beautiful art or make love to your spouse or laugh with friends, do you wonder at the glories of this life that he is lavishing us with? It's so precious. How often are you overtaken at just the spectacle of it all? So many flourishes of love. I'll just add that. Because they'll enjoy it. The awesomeness of God is the foundation for all human society and all human interaction. When God's awesomeness, when his love is wondered at, when we wonder at it in the way that he has made us, we wonder at it in the way that he has made all things, we begin to see the tremendous value in all things. We begin to understand just how valuable we are, just how valuable the creation is, that everything has value and everyone has value, and that our power struggles, our attempts to impose our narrow value systems on this world, our denial of God's magisterial creation and loaning of value to all things. 
We can only see a fraction of it. We can only notice a fraction of it. And we build entire value systems according to that fractional understanding. And then seek to impose those fractionally based value systems on the earth with some kind of misguided certainty that comes from God knows where. And in doing that, we reject what God has said of all of his creation. That it heralds him. That it speaks to his value. Every bit of it. Every corner of it. That's not to say, of course, that there's never a moment for power struggle. Of course, there are. The scriptures themselves tell us there's a time for war. There's a time to resist evil, certainly. But even the greatest evils on this earth have within them some hidden testimony to the glory and the value of God. Even the greatest evils on this earth, our primary mission in resisting them is not to defeat them. It's to notice the treasures and the value that is lurking even inside them. Corrupt as they may be. If they were made by God, if they are from God, then there is something of value there, something to learn from, something that can be taught to us, something that can slow us down and undress our certitude and show us how little we actually see. As that psalm says, Psalm 19, both day and night pour out speech, good and evil, light and dark. They testify and reveal the knowledge of God. But when God's awesomeness is diminished in our minds, or worse, forgotten altogether, then the stuff of this world, the creatures of this world, they lose that view of value. We can't see that value on loan from God when we can't see God. We start to forget and see all of his handiwork according to its utility. Start to make judgments about what is worthwhile or what is valuable in accord with what it can do for me. Or how it can serve us. How it can be a slave to my own narrow longings and passions. Creation starts to stratify and be weighted in our minds according to that raw, selfish pragmatism. Without the worship of God, without the recognition of his hand in all things, the only value that matters is power. Raw power. How can I win? How can I get what I want? How can I leverage every bit of this glorious place, every person in this glorious place, for my maximum benefit? Life becomes about getting your way. That is a miserable way to live. 
it's not even life. It's death masquerading as the pursuit of life. If I could get my way, I'd have more joy, I'd have more life, I'd have more of what I want. No, you'd have more death and carnage and ruin. Jesus invites us into a new and better way. Jesus is God in flesh, breaking into our world to remind us of God's supreme value and arrest our hearts again. I don't totally understand why, but the creation in all of its majesty, it's not enough. We take it for granted. We just get used to it. I can stand here and wave my arms about the pleasure of eating and warm breezes and lovemaking and all these things. And we'll forget within the hour. The reflection of God in creation is not enough. It doesn't grip us enough. And we forget the glory of God so easily. We say, oh, that was nice. But I wonder if serving my own desires is better. That was the calculation, of course, made in the garden. This is nice, Lord. But I bet it'd be even better if I were God. Jesus came into the world so that we would not only have the reflection of God to testify to him, but so that we would have God in the flesh. He came to bring God to us in such a personal and near way that we could not forget him. That we would not be in relationship with a God reflected to us. But we'd be in relationship with a God who has come to us. Come to be with us and to know us. He came to reorder the world according to that value system of God. And it turns out that God's value system is wholly other-centric. In God's value system, every last corner of the creation and every last creature in the creation is valuable enough to lay down all that you are in the interest of preserving, in the interest of loving. In God's value system, that value and honor that he has loaned to the creation is strong enough and powerful enough and true enough for him to give up all that he is, to lay down his life to preserve and save. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus came to lay down his life on account of the value he had loaned us. 
and to rescue us from all of the corruption, all of the loss of seeing that value, all of the power games, all of the ways that we try to beat each other and devalue each other. Hear this, every single thing in this world that glimmers to you glimmers because God has loaned value to it, because God has made it. Every single person who glimmers to you, who attracts you, who draws your attention, does so because of the value infused there from God. But that is just as true for your enemies. Everything that glimmers to your enemies glimmers because God has made it so. Everything that glimmers to your spouse or your children, sometimes those can be enemies too, or your political opponents, glimmers because God has infused it with value. Do not presume that you know where value lies in this world unless you are willing to presume that it lies everywhere. Even in places that you cannot see it, perhaps especially there. In places where you are absolutely convinced no value lies, I promise you, value lies. Extraordinary value. Value worth dying for. In Psalm 97, the psalmist writes, The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. All the peoples see his glory, it says, because all of the heavens and the earth proclaim it. Our God is awesome. Our God is matchless. There's nothing and no one who can compare to him in his beauty and in his glory. Wonder at him. Look at Christ and wonder at him. And you'll begin to have your eyes open to see how the world glimmers in ways that you never knew. Worship him. You'll have ears to listen and a heart that values those things that you had so easily and casually dismissed. All of those glimmering glories that have us chasing God in the many varied ways that humanity does. When we see the awesomeness of God, they begin to open to us. And in all that chasing, it turns out, of course, that he's chasing us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this world that you have made. 
we confess that there is so much in it that we can't see, don't appreciate, undervalue, devalue. So much that we would simply destroy and be rid of that you've hidden treasures in. I pray that by your spirit you would slow us down, that our church would be a place where we remind one another to listen, to let go of the certainty of our narrow systems of value and to hear from others who've lived different stories and walked different roads and seen you and your creation from different angles. Help us to offer that to one another and by your spirit, help us to offer it to our world. I pray that you would break down the walls of separation that divide our communities and our families and our neighborhoods, our city, our nation. That you would do the miraculous work that you've done before in reconciling people groups and fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and husbands and wives, friends and neighbors and relatives. Open our hearts to receive each other pray. In Christ's name, amen.